Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Hey, listeners, welcome to this fall 2021 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words, part of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode, we visit with Sam McGee, author of Cartilage Creek, a gripping novel of the Civil War in which his own family's story is told. Jim Dockery, the youngest of Alfred Dockery's sons, is shipped off to fight for the Confederacy. His father is one of Richmond County's most prominent opponents to succession and a vocal advocate for black suffrage. He is also one of the county's largest plantations, with many enslaved working the fields. Despite this contradiction, Jim and his five older brothers enlist in the Army. The horrors of war and the inhumanity of slavery are illustrated through the eyes of the Dockery family. Walter Bennett, author of The Lawyer's Myth and Leaving Tuscaloosa, had this to say about the book. Carlish Creek is a vivid journey into the heart and heat of the Civil War, both a moving family saga and an arresting story of defeat and lost time. Sam McGee spreads it out before us in well-crafted prose, a complex and intricate plot, and unforgettable characters. Battle, cold, disease, death, sometimes even hope and joy, McGee takes us into the smell and feel of it. We march along with the people and the indomitable spirit that carries them through. This novel is a good read, but more than that, it's a deep and meaningful look at the past. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence and uh, really appreciate your time. Join us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, LandisWade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. For everything related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. We've also got a community blog there. Uh, if you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content. And speaking of great content, uh, we put out a book report every two weeks. It's free to sign up for, and uh, there's some free stuff you get when you sign up. You can check that out at the uh, podcast website. Uh, hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. Speaking of free stuff, if you like audiobooks and you go to libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O.fm, and uh, sign up with uh, their audiobook service, uh, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and get a free audiobook. Last thing I want to tell you right quick before we jump into the episode is that we have what's called a Patreon channel, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. It's a place where our authors uh, and I do a deeper dive into the craft of writing and the business of writing and uh, you can join us there and and support the podcast when you do for uh, as little as five dollars a month or eight dollars if you tip. Uh, we put out a lot of content on that page, and uh, we've had a lot of fun doing it. I- I've certainly learned a lot about the craft and business of writing on our Patreon page. So join us uh, at Patreon or through our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's episode. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. Yeah, congratulations on the book. I appreciate that. It's been a... Uh something I knew I wanted to do 30 years ago. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, we're going to talk about that family connection. But first of all, what do you think when uh, somebody calls a lawyer, someone who can 
craft, well-crafted prose. I mean, come on, Sam, you're 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 a trial lawyer, man. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I I spent actually most of last week writing a court of appeals brief, and uh, <laughs> I, I'm glad that no one's writing public comments about that. I, I I think it was a pretty decent piece of work, but I'm not sure how compelling of a read it would be for somebody who's not uh, actually a judge on the court of appeals. Yeah, I thought it interesting that as lawyers, we have to tell the the ending up front. As novelists, we save that for the, for the back end of the book. You know, judges yeah, I mean, are patient. I, I got in the habit a long time ago of of writing a summary of the argument at the beginning of a longer brief because you don't want to lose the audience, right? And uh, and I actually had a former uh, court of appeals judge, now Fourth Circuit judge, Judge Wynn. Uh, it was actually him that told me that years ago. He said, "He said, man, these are great. If these guys that do a summary of the argument, of course, you feel like you're giving away everything at the very beginning, but uh, uh, that's the way it works in law, I guess." Yeah. Well, a couple of disclaimers here before we we start. You already mentioned the the trial lawyer part. You and I had some cases against each other. You're still practicing. I'm recovering. Uh, we both love fly fishing, and and I'm just wondering. You know, what's your take uh, on lawyers who want to write novels? And and to add another layer to that, uh, do you think there's any connection between writing a book and fly fishing? Um, well, there's definitely a connection between writing a book and fly fishing. Um, in fact, I admire some of these guys that managed to fish and write about fishing and somehow turn that into a livelihood. Um <laughs> But for me, anytime I can get outside and from, and, and, you know, like you, for me, it's usually fishing. It could be hiking. It could be something else. Um, but that's when I get my mind right. You know, that's when I'm creative or even in the mornings, if I'm running outside, sometimes, of course, these days I'm thinking through hypothetical deposition questions when I'm running in the mornings. Uh, but if I'm fishing, I'm not thinking about lawyering, but I might very well be thinking about things I want to write. I don't know what it is about lawyers that makes them want to write. Maybe because a lot of, we do a lot of writing, but not the fun part, you know, in our jobs. But uh, I guess maybe the educational background that we have to have to get into law in the first place uh, attracts a certain literary type, maybe. Yeah, uh, that's good. And, and disclaimer number two, uh, this is a work of historical fiction, but it really tells the story of your family. Uh it uh, it also tells the story of one side of my family, which is interesting. Uh, I, I didn't realize this till I started diving into it more, but one of the sons of Alfred Dockery, who goes off to war, is Oliver Hart Dockery. Uh, his father, he was the father of Carrie Mae Dockery, which was my great-grandmother, who we called Bama. And uh, I didn't really know much about Oliver. I was interested. It's, it's kind of surreal to read in the book, you know, what you— what you say about him and what he did and how he went to war and how he left and how he owned slaves. And it just kind of gets you to thinking, but uh, let's go back even further in the line here to the patriarch of the family, Alfred Dockery. Um, tell us a little bit about Alfred Dockery. Well, first of all, Landis, um, apparently you and I are some kind of like 15th cousins or something. Um, <laughs> does, that, does that mean we can't get married? Let me, well, if you read this book closely, you'll realize that my great great grandparents were first cousins. Um, but uh, no, I think it just means that you and I might have been nicer to each other several years ago when we had cases against each other. Have <laughs> we known we, we know, were family? If only we know we were family, that's right. Um, so, Alfred Dockery, I mean, 
okay, growing up, I grew up in a family that had a strong sense of history, strong sense of place. I mean, my grandmother lived in the same house for, you know, 93 of her 95 years. Um, My mother grew up in that same house. You know, the church down at the end of the street is where Wake Forest University was founded and where I ended up going to undergrad. Um, Alfred Dockery is the guy that made the motion at the Baptist Convention at that church uh, to, to, to found Wake Forest. You know, my mom threw her bouquet off the balcony at the brick house, which was Alfred Dockery's house, a house that I now own uh, with my wife. Um, So I grew up in a family with a really strong sense of history. Um, And there are things in that history to be proud of, and there are things in that history that are not things to be proud of. And naturally, when you're a kid, a lot of times you hear primarily the good parts, and then some of those bad parts kind of seep in, right? So Alfred Dockery to me, is a complicated historical figure. To a lot of my family, you know, he's spoken of as kind of a, you know, a hero, patriarch. And certainly he did a lot of very good things with his life. He helped start the public school systems in North Carolina. As I said, he helped found Wake Forest University. You know, he was a progressive thinker for the time and place in which he existed, you know, being pro- Black suffrage and and anti-secession, um, but he still was a slaveholder, and you know there's no such thing as uh, I'm sure there were slaveholders that were a lot worse to their slaves than others, but that doesn't mean there's such a thing as a good slaveholder. Um, and so one of the things that I really wanted to do in this book that was probably the biggest challenge that I had was to deal with the complexity of this history. Here's a guy that's anti-secession, but he lets a Confederate general use his house and sends six sons to fight for the Confederacy. And it's easy to assume that everybody was 100% over here or 100% over there, um, but it was actually a lot more complicated than that. You know, he knew that the economy that he thrived upon um, was not going to be permanent. Um, He knew that the Civil War was a bad idea, but still sent his sons to fight in it. Um, So I had to really find a way to, it would be easy to just bash him. It would be easy to uh, put him on a pedestal as as some of my family members probably want me to. Uh, But the real challenge was to try to tell the whole truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there's plenty of all three. Yeah, I remember um, I, I was taking a trip back from Riceville Beach once and stopped off in the Rockingham area and found the Cartlidge Creek Baptist Church. There's a little plaque there to Alfred Dockery and and learn more about uh, the fact that he gave, the I think, the first gift. It was a set of blacksmith tools. Mm-hmm. The second or third gift came from that church of $69, I think, which was a pretty big gift at the time. But uh, as you said, he, he opposed secession. I think he was the lone dissenting vote. You talk about this in your book. But then he came around and voted with everyone when he realized that the writing, you know, was on the wall and uh, they were going to war. Um, how have you come to terms with this idea uh, of an ancestor, on the one hand, who'd done these things that were very positive, um, as you mentioned, and on the other hand, was a slaveholder and was fighting a war essentially to, to preserve that way of life? Well, I'm I'm glad I wrote the book in my 40s and not 
in my teens, you know, when I first had the idea to write the book. I always knew that I wanted to get that house back in our family. I always knew that I wanted to tell the story, you know, from all the stories that grandma told me sitting on the front porch. Um, but I'm glad I didn't tell it earlier in life because you have to sort of, you know, grow to understand some of these things in perspective, you know, historical perspective. And, you know, I, of course, if I'd have written it a long time ago, I probably could have sold more copies of it because Civil War literature was more popular a couple of decades ago than it is now. Um, it's what I basically had to eventually accept is, you know, the truth is what it is. Um, there were things that these people did that were good things. There were things that they did that were bad. In fact, the entire lifestyle that allowed them to be so prominent was itself sinful. Um, and there's no way to sugarcoat that. Now, if I just went straight to the worst things about them, then I'd be writing a book about a bunch of characters that nobody would care about because they would just be seen as awful. Uh, but at the same time, if I just emphasize that the positive with the positive things that they did in their life or some of the, the better parts of their character, um, then that would have been half history uh, because I would have been sugarcoating and not uh, and not showing the full picture. So it's, you know, I don't think that we just can say uh, expect historical figures to have been simpler than than things are now. Um, you know, it would be easy to say that everybody that lives here or looks like this or has this background believes a certain thing, but it's always messier than that. And living in the legal world like 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 you have and like I do, we just we know exactly how messy things get. Um, and it's never as simple as as uh, it may appear at first. So by the time I finally got around to writing the book, I knew that I wanted to try to capture all of it as best I could. And I actually have had a couple of occasions now to have spent a little bit of time with some of the descendants of Alfred Dockery's slaves. Um, there was one occasion where I got a call and there was going to be a family reunion um, nearby and they asked if they could come to the house. I said, sure, that'd be great. And uh, a lady called me from Cartledge Creek Road and said, uh, Mr. McGee, I said, yes, ma'am, Miss Ferguson, what can I do for you? Are you guys here? She said, yes, sir, we're out at the road. I said, okay. She's very formal. She's calling me sir. She's twice my age. Well, not twice my age, but a good bit older. And uh, she said, well, sir, there's a lot more of us than we were expecting. I was expecting 15 or 20 people. I said, well, how many are, are there? And she said, oh, it's a few more. I said, well, just come on in. There's plenty of room to park cars. Seven church vans <laughs> pulled down the road. <laughs> And and everybody gets out of the out of the vans and they walk out in front of the house and stand there like an assembly. And I realize, oh, I think I'm supposed to talk now. Um, and so we walked around the house and we talked about some of the stories that are actually in the book. And uh and once we all kind of got to know each other and joked around calling each other cousin and stuff like that. The next thing, you know, I started to get some other questions like, well, where were the cabins? And what do you know? Is there any uh, historical record of the slaves? And then, you know, by the time it was all over, we we were having a pretty, you know, uh, honest exchange. And we were talking about this very thing, you know, about the fact that you have somebody who 
did some good things that are in large part justifiably overshadowed by bad things. Uh, and then on another occasion, a, another uh, descendant of Alfred Dockery's slaves, who, by the way, definitely had uh, European, uh, white European blood in her, as a, a lot of descendants of, of slaves do, um, for unfortunate reasons. You know, she came to see us on Easter Sunday. And, uh, and I was, by then, working out writing the book. And so we were actually standing in the cemetery, and I was showing her, this is the grave of Jim Dockery. Let me tell you about him. This is the, this is the grave of Benjamin Franklin Dockery. Let me tell you about him. This is where Sally's buried. This is where Alfred's buried. And, uh, and we had a, we just talked, you know, specifically about, you know, slaveholders, fathering children with female slaves and all that. And, and, uh, and it was actually during that conversation, I thank her and the acknowledgments at the beginning of the book, that I kind of I kind of had a little bit of a light bulb go off and say, OK, I think I finally figured out how to deal with this issue. And it's uh, um, hopefully people uh, kind of see the way I, I managed to deal with that and, and develop that idea throughout the book. And we'll um, hopefully understand kind of why I took that approach and, and think it was effective. Yeah, no, I noticed that you were really, you know, trying to, to cover both sides there. Um, but since you've mentioned the home place, uh, let's talk about the setting uh, for this book, starting with the home pet place. Uh, I, I don't think I found it. Maybe I did on that trip, but I don't have a vivid memory of it. Uh, the, the, the picture of the house is on the cover, uh, although has it changed any? Uh, it's a brick two-story structure. Um it's got a porch on it. Uh, is it pretty much the same now as it was in the mid 1800s? Very substantially. Um, there was at one point in time a roof line that extended out farther, and there were big columns and a broader front porch. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion over the years about whether or not that was original or whether or not that was added in the first, you know, decade or two. Um, but uh, and then the current porch with smaller columns was was added later um and, but the rest of what you see like the like the shutters on the front of the house those are original uh, in fact the blinds in the uh um in the front rooms are original the uh nothing has been substantially changed in the uh as far as the rooms in the house with exception of the current master bedroom was once a separate kitchen and it got attached to the house because they didn't attach kitchens back then because they burned down too much. And then there is what we call the atrium. There was kind of two, you got the front rooms of the house and then it had two wings that came off the back and the area in the middle, which is where they hid some of the livestock when uh, General Kilpatrick came to threaten to burn the house that was open back then and it was closed in and now is kind of a sitting area. But, but for the most part, the house is, is probably 90% plus the same as it was back then. So, so before we have our reading here, I, I, you, you mentioned uh, things that might burn up. There's a story uh, about that. You mentioned General Kirkpatrick. Uh, this house almost didn't survive you know, the Civil War. Uh, it's an interesting story. Do you mind sharing that with us? Yeah. So, and this is one that there are some different accounts out there about. Um, growing up, 
and hearing stories from family around Rockingham, you, you, you always heard about Sherman this and Sherman that and Sherman burned everything. And, and, um, you know, Sherman burned a whole lot more of South Carolina than it did North Carolina. And Lincoln didn't want him burning up North Carolina because he knew that the farther North he got, the more discontent there was with the, the war dragging on and on. And, uh, he didn't want to, just go full scorched earth in North Carolina, Virginia, the way they had in Georgia and South Carolina. Um, Sherman himself actually did not come to Rockingham. Um, but uh, Kilpatrick, who's kind of an interesting character that I talk about in the book, um, uh, he did come through. He was a cavalry general, and he did burn some things in Rockingham. They burned a lot of turpentine mills along the river, which I think they primarily burned just because they they – thought it was fun but uh and they definitely took a lot of things from farms and, and such but they didn't burn nearly as much as they did uh, uh in Charal and south they burned a lot of things down there but they did burn one of the you know the biggest most prominent mill in the in the town because it was being used to make confederate uh uniforms and uh and there's a scene there that that i think we're going to read in a bit so general dockery again prominent figure people knew who he who he was general kilpatrick knew who he was um and although he was anti-secession he had let a confederate general use his house who had then staged a raid on some of kilpatrick's uh cavalry uh, there had been some casualties so there was a threat that his house would be burned um what happens in the book is kilpatrick actually shows up and Alfred Dockery's stuff is kind of scattered because other people been in his house, you know, Confederate general been in his house using it as a temporary headquarters. And so he's searching for this letter from Abraham Lincoln, which said not to disturb his home. Uh, Dockery had been in Congress as a Whig. And when he was leaving Congress, Abraham Lincoln was coming into Congress as a Whig. And, um, And so they had met at some point in time And the legend is that there was this letter and that the letter said his house was not to be burned and that that was what saved the house. So in the book, you've got Alfred Dockery, you know, feverishly searching for this letter because a lot of his papers had been pushed to the side when someone else was using his office as a headquarters. And uh, they're literally uh, Union Cavalry with torches on his uh, doorstep as he's searching for the letter. to go out and stop him from burning down his house. Well, it sounds like a good, as good an explanation as any. And in fact, uh, you and I are going to talk on our Patreon uh, channel after this episode uh, about this idea of trying to balance truth and fiction, fill in the gaps, make it make it as real as, and, and as true as it can be. Um, but let's do this. Let's um, let's do that reading you talked about. Uh, you talked about uh, this is a scene where they're burning a mill in Rockingham. You want to set this up before you read it? Yeah. So this is, um, uh, this is burning of the Richmond manufacturing company, uh, in Rockingham. Uh, it was the most prominent building that they burned. It was actually a threat to burn the courthouse. And the reason that the courthouse didn't get burned is because next door, uh, there lived a lady who had, uh, taken in injured union troops. And so that's what spared her house from being burned. And therefore, the, they didn't want to burn the courthouse because it would probably catch her house on fire. 
So this was the the burning of the Richmond Manufacturing Company by uh, by Union troops that were um, that were uh, commanded by General Kilpatrick, and uh, Alfred Dockery was one of the original proprietors of the, of the Richmond Manufacturing Company, and he, like the other a lot of the other townspeople, um, came out to to watch uh, because Kilpatrick made no secret about what he was going to do that day. A few feet away at the base of the great mill was a man who seemed to be in charge. He wore a crisp and clean blue uniform dotted with shiny gold accents, fit for a gala of West Point royalty. There was no doubt he had dressed for the occasion, but his uniform did little to conceal that he was generally a sorry-looking fellow. Indeed, the uniform was at least two sizes too big and seemed more to accentuate rather than hide the uncouth nature of the man. He held his hat in his hand, exposing damp, matted hair pulled thinly across his head in an apparent effort to conceal patches of exposed scalp. His long nose pointed down and out over his mouth, which didn't smile but seemed like it was just about to, and to do so in as sinister a fashion as possible. In contrast to the matted hair on his scalp, his sideburns were bushy and wild, extending nearly a foot below his oversized ears. Each sideburn gave the appearance of a grotesquely fat caterpillar curling up off the side of his face, looking about trying to decide where to crawl next. With him was a woman of striking appearance, and she seemed very much with him. She did smile, in as sinister a fashion as one might expect from her companion. Sinister or not, she was beautiful, and knew it. Her face was pale and round with impossibly smooth skin, framed by a thick head of long, wheat-colored hair that fell around her shoulders and captured the fading light of the setting sun. She wore a long black dress, tighter and less demure than southern decorum allowed. She had the kind of beauty that angered other women. There was a knowledge in her hazel eyes of things a well-brought-up girl her age were not meant to know. It gave her eyes a look that sent men straight past admiration and directly into lust, a fact other women seemed to recognize. By looks, the couple was mismatched by something intangible in both of them, maybe not. When he was studying her, the general turned his eyes back to the Yankee officer. To his surprise, the man was looking right back at him. When their eyes met, the foul Yankee's lips curled into a sneering smirk. He tilted his head slightly toward the woman, then nodded at the general and smiled a bit more broadly. He turned his attention to a young officer nearby and whispered something to him. The young man in blue then darted through the mob, speaking to every other man in blue with a pen, with a stripe on his arm. The army sprang to action with great excitement. They fashioned torches from branches wrapped in cloth, no doubt pilfered from the mill. They dipped them into buckets of tar and lit them on fire. The light above was growing dim, but dozens of torches now dotted the landscape from the mill down to the creek bend by the sandbar. Mothers clamored to pull their children closer. The general watched as one of the torches launched from the far side of the river and drifted in a high arc over the creek to the opposite bank. Another soldier gathered up and tossed it back across. Soon dozens of flaming torches were sailing back and forth across the creek. Streaks of yellow and orange light rolled across the rippled surface of the creek below, crossing one another as the torches sailed above. The light caught the faces of jubilant Yankees as they scampered about, launching one projectile then grabbing for another. Other torches illuminated the clumps of defeated citizens who continued to huddle together in motionless silence. There was much cheering and shouting among the northern troops. The vile officer finally smiled in full, let out an ironic imitation rebel yell, and squeezed his arm around the drone-tight waist of his traveling companion. 
She watched the fiery arcs cross the creek and laughed out loud, pure joy in her eyes. As the torches flew, they grew closer and closer to the mill. Each made its way upstream in a series of agonizingly slow zigzags, prolonging the citizens' dread in the, Yankee, in the soldiers' celebration. Finally, the Yankee soldiers waved their torches near the base of the mill itself, awaiting the order to torch the city's grandest structure. So, Sam, uh, you, you cover a lot in this book um, scenes like you just read there of what happened uh, locally uh, when the Union troops came through. Also, um, essentially the horrors of war, because you take us to to the battlefields and you take us to the prisons uh, of the Civil War. Um, it's also a book about family. It's also a book about uh, maybe doing one's duty, even if it's against their beliefs, because you explore that with some of the characters. But uh, just briefly, uh, tell us about the, uh, you know, the, the children of Alfred Docker who went off to war uh, and who these people were. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. So he had two of his sons had moved to Mississippi uh, and to eventually find their uh, fortune in the cotton trade. Uh, at least that was the plan. Uh, so he had two sons uh, that were fighting out in the, in the Western theater. Uh, both of whom are discussed. Uh, there's a, a story about Thomas Dockery, who was injured, and uh, and I know we're going to talk about that more in the second uh, session, but it, that was a fascinating place where I was actually able to find a piece of written history which, you know, breathed some life into one of the stories that Grandma had told me and, and filled in a gap that, that was there in the oral tradition. Uh, and then his brother, John Thomas was the oldest son. And then John, uh, was out there with him and, uh, who did eventually die of camp fever, um, out West during the war. And then, so Oliver, uh, uh, that that's related to you. Oliver was not the oldest son, but he was the oldest son left around, uh, since his, since Thomas had moved to Mississippi and he had already become, almost as prominent as his father. Uh, he had a big personality. He was a uh, sort of a grand orator um, and had just had a big magnetic personality. He had his own uh, sizable plantation over in a little uh, town or area of Mangum and uh, had about as much land and about as many slaves as his father did. And so he was one of the fellows that started what they called the Brave Richmond Boys, which was one of the, this is something that happened a lot. You would have the prominent, uh, there was such a call to arms that, that new uh, units were being formed all over. And a lot of times they were started by somewhat prominent uh, citizens and, uh, and, and Oliver was no exception. And he had uh, his brothers, um, Benjamin and, uh, and Alfred, uh, little Alfred with him. Uh, you'll have noted from that reading that Alfred Dockery, the patriarch, was often referred to as General Dockery, which I believe was actually a title he held at one point in the Tennessee militia, but everybody just refers to him as the general. But anyway, his his son Alfred, uh, along with Benjamin, my great-great-grandfather, and then uh, Oliver were all in the Brave Richmond Boys, uh, which is a unit that had a little bit of a slow start in the war because a lot of people didn't like that it was uh, being run by the son of a anti-secessionist. 
but they did eventually find their way uh, into the thick of it. Meanwhile, Jim, uh, who is probably the primary character we follow through the, the war in the book, um, Jim was uh, uh, not 18 when the war started, and his mother was acutely aware that she now had five sons off at war and did not want uh, Jim going, and so tried to keep him from going as long as they could. And then Henry was still younger and 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 ended up missing out on the action and, of course, was eager to go. Uh, one thing I, 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 I do acknowledge is that in part because I was writing a war book uh, and following people into battles and prisons and things being what they were in the 19th century. Um, uh, some of Alfred and Sally's daughters, I feel get short shift in the book a little bit, but, um, but that being said, there's no shortage of, uh, of strong female characters in the book anyway, including Sally uh, herself, the matriarch who's um, who we follow a fair bit. And then uh, Betty Covington, who, uh, uh, yes, was the first cousin of of Benjamin Dockery and eventually uh, wife of, and that's my that's my line. Um, Betty uh, Betty Covington and Benjamin Dockery. That's a little bit of a love story angle that you get in the in the book. And uh, those are my great great grandparents. And in fact, it was Betty Covington Dockery who lived through all of this who told these stories to my grandmother um, and my grandmother told them to me. Uh, and I spent a lot of time researching and it's amazing how many times I was actually able to find some piece of history uh, or something from the historical record that just showed me how accurate the oral tradition usually was. It wasn't always a perfect fit, but uh, but when you think about it, I was only getting I was only getting some of that, even though I was born over 100 years after the Civil War ended, I was getting a lot of that uh, uh, just secondhand because Betty was the first person to count when she spoke to my grandmother, Lib Covington, and, and it was secondhand when I got it from grandma. Yeah, I, I found it very interesting, too. Um, Jim, the youngest, uh, is one of the main focuses because he ends up I think in the war the longest and in prison camps, but also Ben Benjamin, I thought it was interesting that he was in a fight down at Fort Fisher, um, ended up getting uh, caught, arrested, put in a ship and shipped North. And somehow he and he and uh, his young, a younger brother end up in the same prison camp. It, it is, as we're talking about balancing truth and fiction, is there truth to that, that somehow they ended up in the same prison up it, north. There, there is, and that and that was actually so. There, there are two bins, and I, I admit that I actually even considered using a different name. I end up just using Benjamin for one and Ben for the other because there's a Benjamin Dockery and a Ben Covington. Oh, I missed that. You're right. It, ben Covington was he was related to Betty Covington, right? So yeah, that was that yeah. was Betty's sister. So so he and yeah. and Jim were were uh, cousins. And they went off in completely different directions. Uh, Jim is a, such a great character to follow through the war because he saw so much of the war. Uh, you know, he fought in Virginia like a lot of folks did. And then he was in Pickett's Charge in Gettysburg. And then he, he was in the two worst prison camps uh, of the North, Point Lookout. And then the, by far the worst was Elmira. 
which some historians think was intentional retribution for what was happening to Northern prisoners at, at Andersonville. Um, but uh, so he's such a great character to follow through the war. And I spent a lot of time talking about Elmira because I feel like there's some good history out there, but I feel like it's been kind of underrepresented in, in, in historical fiction about just how terrible it was. Um, so they, he goes off to the Northern theater. Meanwhile, Benjamin Covington goes and fights at, at Fort Fisher, uh, which by the way, I really wanted to feature Fort Fisher because at the time it was probably the most impressive naval bombardment in the history of the world. Um, and there's a moment in the movie Lincoln, uh, where, uh, they're waiting to find out if they've taken the fort. And there's some discussion about just how massive that bombardment was. And that's one of the only times I've really seen it uh, maybe get its due. But I really wanted to feature Fort Fisher because it was, A, such a massive bombardment, and B, such a big deal in terms of the, the ultimate outcome of the war. Uh, but these two guys end up, you know, one gets to Elmira by train. The other one gets there by boat, which ironically, the boats that transported prisoners of war were rather similar to the boats that transported slaves. Now, it wasn't nearly as long of a trip, um, but uh, but there was some irony to that, I think, that you had mm. guys fighting to protect the state's rights to, uh, as they saw it, to, to protect the institution of slavery being essentially transported on slave ships. Um, you got to think at least some of them had to scratch their head a bit over that and, and, and uh Maybe maybe the irony was lost on some, but I'm sure it wasn't lost on all. But we know that these two guys both ended up Elmira at the same time, and we absolutely know that they uh, were released on the same day. Um, and there's been a couple of different versions over the years of oral tradition that I've heard about what happened. But one of those has always been that these two walked home together and, and, and the very account of what happens at the end of that uh, and is specifically from oral tradition, as I was told it, um, down to a lot of detail of exactly what, what happens when they, uh, when they come home. And we're going to talk about that, uh, listeners, uh, on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. You can join us over there. We're going to dive a little deeper into how Sam went about uh, – distilling all this history and figuring out uh, what he needs to kind of use to round out what he could kind of put his finger on, um, which is something that historical uh, fiction novelists uh, have to wrestle with. But Sam, just a couple of quick questions before we wrap up here in the writing life. Um, you're a practicing lawyer, a uh, pretty busy lawyer, as I recall, uh, a lot of trial work. You're thinking about depositions. Um, how do you balance that with uh, writing a novel as comprehensive as this? And parenting, oh yeah, parenting too, <laughs> and, and um, being a husband, and being a husband, and and, and trying to <laughs> trying to be a good husband, trying to be a good dad. I've got you know yeah. now a sixteen year old and thirteen year old at home, and uh, coaching baseball, and you know all that, teaching daughter to drive. Um, you got you got plenty of time to write a write a novel. Yeah, I you know this this book was written largely between the hours of 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. Um, there was a lot of things that I knew I, I had in my head that had been kicking around for years that I knew I wanted to include. And I spent 
you know, I couldn't just sit down and just write. Uh, if I'm going to write about Fort Fisher, I've got to read three books on Fort Fisher. Because, like, for example, Fort Fisher, the description of what happens in that battle is lifted, you know, really from historical accounts. Or the uh, my descriptions of uh, that I just read of the burning of the Richmond Manufacturing Company, uh, tip of the cap to John Hutchinson, kind of a, a local historian down in, in Rockingham. Uh, who wrote a great Richmond County history book? Um, you know this this that account is uh, kind of a uh, you know fictionalized version, but but based largely on you know his history. Um, so yeah, I mean it. I just the only way you can take on a project like this when you're practicing law ninety miles an hour and raising kids and doing everything else you're doing is to just have to really have a passion to want to do it and. I wanted to do this my whole life, and I've been so busy my whole life that it took me until I was in my 40s to do it, and it's kind of like when my wife and I decided it was time to have kids. We realized if we wait until it's a good time, because we were both practicing law at the time, if we waited till the right time, we'd never had kids, <laughs> and so if I'd waited for the right time to write this book, I would have been sitting on the porch of the brick house at 85 years old saying, yeah, you know, I really should have gotten that book written. <laughs> so I, well, I, well now, now, now I know based upon your writing schedule, why you were so grumpy when we would try to settle cases together, you know, so yeah, you're, up, yeah, you're st yeah. staying up, staying up late. Hey, one last I question. I woke up in the morning and said, I got to go deal with Landis Wade. Exactly, exactly. So one last question here. Um, I know this is your first novel, and I sometimes ask this to, to novelists who've written several books, but but it still it still applies because there was a lot of work that went into this. And that the, the question is, um, you know, looking back, if you could tell uh, the Sam McGee uh, as he thought about writing when he got started with this project, uh, and based on what you've learned since then, you might tell him something uh, that would help him through that process. Uh, a little bit better, what would it be? Um, wow. You know, I think it probably would have been to always carve out the time to write, but to have some patience. Um, because I had such a time crunch, um, if, you know, some nights, you know this from writing yourself, it's like anything else. Like some mornings when I run, I can't run as fast as other mornings. You know, um, some days you got it and some days you don't. I don't care if you're talking about your jump shot or or writing or running or whatever it may be. Everybody has days that are better than others. I had such a sense of urgency to write this story when I finally got around to writing it that I would get frustrated if I wasn't on you know, maybe I wasn't on because it was one thirty in the morning. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there are other days where you feel like you've just got lightning in a bottle and you finish a chapter and you're like, man, I did that. I really like that. <laughs> that turned out better than I thought it was going to. But I just, you know, I, I it's almost this weird combination of a sense of urgency and patience that you have to put together. And I'm a lot better at the sense of urgency than I am patience. Um, 
Uh, but well, I, I can see I, I can see why we're related then because <laughs> I, I have that same issue and I know what you're talking about. But I I hear that word a lot when I ask authors uh, that very question, and that is, you know, be patient. It, it will get better. Uh, you will get through it. It may not be on the schedule you hoped it would be, but if you have patience, uh, everything's going to be fine. It's going to work out. Yeah. So with that in mind, uh, Sam, I, we're going to jump over and continue this conversation at Patreon. Um, I want to thank you uh, for being a part of Charlotte's podcast and bringing this this story to life. Uh, it was it was fun to read and uh, try to connect the dots, uh, you know, for me. And uh, we'll have a lot more to talk about. I'm I'm looking forward to that field trip we're going to take sometime down to Rockingham, so you can show me around. There's not and there's not a trout down there, but we can probably wet a hook anyway. <laughs> yeah, bass or something. Anyway, thanks for being on the podcast. All right, thanks a lot, Landon. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.